continue our discussion of how Jesus is better um, by remembering the overall truth of this entire series, that the whole Bible is about Jesus. There's one unifying theme from Genesis to Revelation. You've heard me say it time and time again. The Old Testament anticipates the coming of Christ. The Gospels obviously reveal the coming of Christ. And the rest of the New Testament reflects and anticipates a second coming of Christ. The whole Bible is about Jesus. We've seen to this point how Jesus is the true and better version of Adam, how he's the true and better version of Abel, the true and better version of Noah, the true and better version of Abraham and Isaac, the true and better version of Moses, and the true and better version of Boaz. And tonight we're going to continue that discussion by seeing how Jesus comes as the true and better David. And I was trying to think about how I could communicate in a different way the kind of thing that we're doing with this series. And I began to reflect about my love for Batman. Um, A lot of you have seen the Batman movies. When I was a kid, I remember in second grade or first grade when the first Batman came out, uh, Michael Keaton was then the Batman. And of course, Jack Nicholson played one of the greatest villains of all time as the Joker. And so, of course, we get Michael Keaton for a couple of films. And then progressively, uh, the Batman portrayals get worse and worse and worse. So you get Michael Keaton in the beginning, and he's kind of odd. doesn't look like a typical kind of Batman, but he'll do I mean, compared to the next two. You get Val Kilmer coming in, and then George Clooney puts the nail in the coffin on that first franchise, right? And so you kind of love Batman. You kind of excuse little things, but you know that Batman's not all it's capable of being in those last two films. And then, a couple of years ago, and some glorious revelation, Christopher Nolan comes and rebirths the Batman vision and gives Christian Bale the key to the Batman persona. And man, does he deliver. I mean, you saw potential in Michael Keaton, less so in Val Kilmer, really less so in George Clooney. But then Christian Bale comes and finally we see someone portray Batman and all the glory that he deserves. And so tonight we're going to, in a weird segue, look at how David is kind of this Michael Keaton-ish kind of thing, and then how Jesus comes in a name twist that is only fate, in a Christian Baal kind of way, and redeems the things that we see first off in the person and work of David. I know we're stretching, but sometimes you need to before you preach. Okay. Here's how Jesus is better. Jesus is the better David in that He is our full substitutionary representative and our security and ultimate victory over our largest obstacle, sin. Jesus is the better David in that he is our full substitutionary representative and our security and ultimate victory over our largest obstacle, sin. And to uncover the foreshadowing relationship that we're going to look at tonight between David and Jesus. I want to focus on one particular part of David's overall narrative. I mean, we could be here all night talking about the story of David, but I want to focus on the story of David and Goliath. And of course, this is truly one of the more dramatic stories in the whole Bible. So let me give you a little bit of background as we approach uh, 1 Samuel 17 to look at the story of David and Goliath. David, the youngest son of a guy named Jesse, who's out shepherding his father's flocks. 
uh, good-looking guy, young, not super stout. Uh, you wouldn't look at him and say, man, that dude is cut. Uh, he's kind of just a, a normal, average, really good-looking guy with apparently affinity for music and the arts. Honestly, I really identify with this guy, uh, David, uh, for multiple reasons. I mean, I'm not the, the biggest guy on the block. This, this guy we have over here playing guitar tonight looks like he's holding this little thimble because he's so swolt. I mean, I'd be swallowed by this thing, and he's just up there like, that's built. That's kind of Psalm. That's not David. I mean, uh, yeah, Saul, not David, all right? So David's this kind of ordinary guy who's out shepherding the flocks, and uh, this guy named Samuel comes to his house. He's looking for a new king because Saul has disobeyed the Lord, and the mantle of leadership over Saul has been taken from him. The Lord has removed his favor from Saul and is now looking for a new king. And so Samuel comes to Jesse. He asks for Jesse's sons because God sent him to Jesse's house. He goes one by one through David's brothers and does not find the candidate that he thinks that God is calling to the next king of Israel. So he calls out for David, uh, for David the youngest son of Jesse, to come. He knows this is God man, and he anoints him as the king, future king of Israel. Right after that, because the presence of God had left Saul, the Lord sends a tormenting spirit upon Saul. Saul is so tormented that he calls for David, who someone tells him has a really great music ability, to come and play for him in his palace just to appease the torment that he is under. So that's a little background as we approach Uh, what's happening now. After David comes to the palace, the Philistines rise up against Israel, and Philistine and Israel go to war. And that's where we find uh, the setup for our story tonight in 1 Samuel 17, 1 through 9. So if you'll turn there with me real quick, we'll read the first nine verses of 1 Samuel 17. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. And they were gathered at Sukkot, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sukkot and Azekah, and Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side. So get this picture. Uh, there's this big kind of canyon, which is the valley of Allah. And on one side in this big mountain stands the Philistine army, and on the other side on this mountain stands the Israelite army. And this valley is where they are supposed to come together. So it's a very epic kind of tale. On one mountain, an army. On the other mountain, an army. In this battlefield, waiting in anticipation for these two rival countries to clash. So, verse 4. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. Seems kind of odd that he would have letters on him. That was a weak joke, I apologize. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then he will be your servants. 
But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. Well, what will Israel do? This mammoth of a man, a giant, comes down the mountain to this valley and begins to taunt the people of Israel and says, who wants to come out and fight me? And if you have any kind of idea about what the Bible just described there, this dude is big. Big, big guy. And what is Israel to do? Who can Israel produce to come out and fight Goliath? What we see here is something that is common in the Eastern time at this time. It's a representative battle where one side elects one warrior to come out to represent the whole army, and the other side elects one guy to come out and represent their army, and they fight as representatives of their people, and whoever wins, wins, and whoever loses, loses. So it kind of saves a lot of lives, but it also is a very important battle. You better be sure that you pick the right guy. But who could stand from Israel against such a massive Warrior. It's kind of hard to put it in perspective for us today. It'd be like someone trying to sing against Celine Dion. That's the best way I can describe it. Someone trying to have a sing-off with Celine Dion. You just don't do it. When you have a voice that fell from heaven, angelic-like, you don't stand up at any time and say, I can sing better than Celine Dion. All of you have seen American Idol. All of you have seen people try to do it, and it never, ever works, ever. Do not try to mess with Celine. You just don't go there. And that's what we see tonight. Israel is freaking out because Celine Dion has stepped forward, and she's asserted herself and say, who wants to mess with me? My heart will go on. Yours will not. And memories of bad battles past were flooding in. It was all coming back to them about how time and time again. Y'all don't know that song, do you? Remember that one, It's All Coming Back to Me? I'll stop there. All right. So who's going to step forward? Well, we see an unlikely challenger later on in 1 Samuel. Go down with me to verse 22. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brother. So during uh, this time, Jesse sends David to go check on his brothers who are fighting with the people of Israel. So he's there. He brings stuff in, leaves the baggage and other stuff with this guy. As he talked to his brothers, behold, a champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of Philistine again and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men, quote-unquote, of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. You know Goliath's got to be eating this up. Dude walks out, one against a thousand, and these thousand men are running because this dude is so big. The men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter. And make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine, watch out, that he should defy the armies of the living God? 
People answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down, and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? Ouch, brother. I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. David said, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep of his flock. And when when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from uh, from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of a lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. The story becomes more and more ridiculous. This little shepherd boy, a youth, says, I'm going to take on Goliath. Going back to our Celine Dion analogy, it would be like Rebecca Black of YouTube Friday fame. Coming up and saying, I will go against Celine Dion. How ridiculous. A no talent, terrible person. Rebecca Black, if you're listening, Rebecca, I don't mean this intentionally against you. It's a metaphor. I'm exaggerating. You get it, all right? No talent, Rebecca Black has the audacity to stand up against Grammy, Oscar winning, maybe Oscar winning. She performed on the Oscars. Celine Dion. There's no challenge, none, and yet that's exactly what happens. Something miraculous happens, and Rebecca Black beats Celine Dion. Can you imagine the headlines? Rebecca Black sings Celine Dion off the stage. Ridiculous, you say? I also agree, but that's what happened here. David beats Goliath. Young, slender, good-looking guy, kind of like me, goes against Goliath. Goes against Goliath. And with some incredible ninja-like moves, takes down Goliath. David goes ninja with a slingshot and a stone, knocks the dude over, jumps on top of him, and cuts off his head. That's awesome. (laughs) He cuts off his head. So, now that we've talked about the story, let's consider four non-VBS observations about the story of David that lead us to better appreciate the work of Christ in us. I mean, obviously, all of us have heard this story in BBS. And there are, of course, some elementary things that you learn about life in the story of David. Let's dig a little bit deeper tonight as we consider how this story is a precursor to the work of Christ in us. Number one, David's calling allows him to trust in the provision of God in spite of human reason. Remember, David arrives and all the men of Israel, all the men, 
of Israel. We use that term loosely here. All the men of Israel fled from Goliath and were much afraid. Of course, they were focusing upon the physical disadvantages of trying to fight a guy like Goliath, but they forgot the fact that they had the greatest advantage of all. They were the chosen people of God, and God had promised them victory. But David, you see, has already learned that God looks at much more than physical appearance. Remember, when he is being anointed king, God says to him, well, to Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, 7, Listen to this. Do not look on his appearance or on height of his stature because I have rejected him. Talking about Saul. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The Lord looks differently than man. David's already learned this because he has been anointed king, even though he is very different than Saul. When Saul was anointed king, he looked like a king. He's a big guy, swolt handsome, looked like he was going to be a leader of men. And yet, time and again, his heart wasn't right. And all those physical appearance looked like he should be king. His heart did not affirm his kingship. David, on the other hand, is the complete opposite. Physically, he doesn't look like a king, but his heart is kingly. And because of that, the Lord anoints him as king. And David knows, I got a promise on my life. God has spoken over me. It's been prophesied that I will be king. There's a faith in me that God will deliver me because what he has spoken over me will not go void. If I stand in front of Goliath and I fight because I have trust in the prophecy of God over my life, I know that he will deliver me. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? What incredible faith. No wonder, no wonder God anointed him king. In the face of insurmountable odds, seemingly, David stands up boldly in faith and says, my God will deliver. You may not believe me, you may laugh, but watch as God does something great through me. Number two, David becomes the substitutionary representative of the Israelite people. Again, one of the most interesting facets to this story is this representative battle. Instead of many casualties, only one casualty because of this representative battle. And David is an unlikely representative. Why not Saul? He's the king. He's the dude who's big. He's the one that's supposed to be the lead warrior, broad-shouldered, large in stature. What a king should look like. Yet he did not take the battlefield. He, he allows this boy, this shepherd youth who played flute for him or whatever instrument he played, harp, to fight rather than himself. David becomes the substitutionary representative of the entire Israelite people He steps forth with the full weight of Israel upon his shoulders and boldly fights, knowing that God is on his side. And because of that, David defeats Israel's greatest threat and guarantees them ultimate 
victory. And this unlikely victory, David secures freedom for his people. He truly saves thousands of lives and allows for his country to keep their identity and sovereignty. Remember, Goliath is no small feat. He's a big thing. But certainly the people of God, because of their history with God, should have known that their God was bigger than this Philistine man. They allowed a circumstance to determine their response instead of their confidence uh, confidence in God. But David acts in faith, and regardless of the situation, knows that because of this faith, the Lord will bless. Israelite men allowed the physical to define their actions. And instead of seeing a small man in comparison to their big God, they saw a big man because they viewed their God as too small. David, however, did not. He knew the size of the man wasn't the issue because his God was bigger. Finally, David earns the loyalty of his people as a result of his victory. If you read forward in the story of David, you'll find that he makes quite a name for himself on the battlefield. Even after this battle, the Philistines come back and they fight again, and David's just tearing it up on the battlefield. In 1 Samuel uh, 21, 11, people are making songs about him. Listen to this. They're making songs and they're dancing about David. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his tens of thousands. People are singing and dancing in Israel about David. He's not even king yet. But they are praising his name as their great warrior. You see, the Lord uses the faith of David to bring his people together in support of him. David protects his people and serves them, and they in turn give him their loyalty. Saul, of course, is made jealous by this shift and ultimately tries to kill David, but David is protected by the Lord and eventually becomes the greatest king, at least earthly king, in Israel's history, which, of course, was prophesied over him. So, Now that we see these overarching truths in the story of David, how is Jesus better? Yes, this is an awesome story. It's a really awesome story, actually. Uh, You don't see many guys like this going ninja in the Bible. Really cool. But how is Jesus better? Number one, Jesus follows the calling of God to death, promising against human reason a resurrection that has not happened yet. Remember, Jesus has called Lazarus from death into life, but we've never seen someone resurrect themselves. So, how could Jesus truly be the Savior of the world and King of the Jews if he's dead? Yeah, that's exactly what God is calling him to. And he's told them time and time again, I'm going to die. But how do these things reconcile? How can Jesus be king of the Jews, savior of the world, if he is dead? And even if he's proclaiming a resurrection of the dead, who's going to call him from death into life if he is dead? Certainly the apostles don't have that kind of power. They've never done anything that miraculous. And Jesus is supposed to be the worker of miracles. 
I mean, we've seen him heal people. We've seen him do crazy things. So why doesn't he right now just do some weird miracle to rescue himself from the Jewish people and the Roman authorities? And here's the ultimate irony of the cross. The ultimate irony of the cross is that in his weakness, Jesus shows his ultimate strength. For in his weakness, he makes us strong. This concept defies human reason. The calling that God placed upon himself in Christ defies human reason. It doesn't make sense to us. On appearance, it seems self-defeating. And that is entirely the point. You and I can't make this stuff up. It's not of human conception. It's precisely that God defies human conception that we see the glory of God more clearly displayed. Jesus comes as a servant king, completely opposite of what the people of God expected. Remember, they were anticipating a political king to come in and wipe out everyone. They were expecting a Saul, but instead they got a David. A David who did not crave political power, but who time and time again made himself last and ultimately gave his life on a cross. And the beautiful thing is that in that weakness, in that service, he becomes more powerful than you and I could ever have imagined. It defines human conception, and that's what makes it so beautiful. That's the cool thing about the story of David, too. David should never have won that battle. That's why that story is not a story of David, but the power and sovereignty of God. And the same thing is true about our life. There are plenty of things that God calls us to that defy reason. Plenty of things. And it's precisely when we allow God to act in ways that defy human reason that we see him most powerfully displayed. Because without him, that thing would have never happened. You and I don't get to walk on water unless he calls us to get out of the boat. Number two, Jesus becomes a substitute for not just a single nation in a battle against a man, but rather represents all of God's elect against sin and depravity. Turn with me real quick to Hebrews 2, verses 14 to 18. Listen to this cool passage about Jesus. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same things, flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest, and the service of God to make propitiation, to bear the wrath of God for the sins of the people. 
For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus took on the flesh of humanity in order to stand before God as our representative and face the evil of sin and the devil head on. He became sin in order to defeat sin and satisfy the wrath of God against sin. He took on our sin head on, went ninja on it, and cut off its head. Thank you. And that means... Number three, that Jesus defeats sin and depravity and secures our own victory against these common human foes. Now, I'm about to preach a little bit, so I hope you get excited. You and I tend to think of our sin as greater than it is. In the same way that the Israelite people looked at Goliath and said, there's no way we can beat that, you and I treat our sin the exact same way. We wrestle with it, and we find ourselves often defeated by it. But, my friends, do not make this enemy of ours bigger than it is. While certainly sin can be enticing, while certainly it may look enticing and powerful, it has no power over us in Christ. Do you hear that tonight? That sin in Christ has no power power over you. Our slavery to that sin has been conquered. You now have a choice. Do I want to do this thing and sin against God willfully? And listen, if you're honest with yourself, when you are caught in habitual sin, the moment before you do that sin, something goes through your mind. You know it does. Where you sit there and you willfully say, I know this is wrong and I'm going to do it anyway. You know it's true. Girl, you know it's true. Okay, that's a little Millie Vanilli tonight. I don't know what's going on. Listen, but you and I know that that's exactly the conversation that runs through our head anytime we do anything willfully against God when the Holy Spirit lives within us. And the question you have to ask is, am I going to willfully disobey God or do I want to pursue holiness more? My friends, do not give sin more credit than it deserves. It is not the master of you any longer. It's not. It's not. We make it out bigger than it is. Oh, man, it's just, it's just so much of my identity. It's who I am. I just, I, I've been with it so long. I can't imagine my life without it. I, I, can't, I can't fix this thing. I've tried time and time and time. Again, here's the basic underlying truth. You love that sin more than Jesus, period. That's it. That's what sin, habitual sin in your life is. You love that sin more than Jesus. You are viewing that sin as bigger than your God. And you're running from it. You're fleeing from it or right into its trap. And that's not the point of the cross. Jesus defeated it. Therefore, there is now no condemnation in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, 1. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body, Romans 6. You have the power and authority over that sin. Do not make it bigger than it is. Just know that Christ in you is the hope of glory. The Holy Spirit within you is more powerful than that which is in the world. Look that sin in the eye, go ninja on it, and cut off its head. Don't give it more power than it deserves. It's not that powerful. When you think of it that way, you give it more power than it deserves, and you make it bigger than it is. Jesus has conquered it, living that victory, the end. Number four, 
Jesus earns the loyalty of all of his church as a result of his victory. Because Jesus did what he did on the cross, because he earned our freedom and indeed our very life, we owe him everything. He is not just a king of Israel. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He has the name that is above every name. At his name, when he returns, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess the glory of the God that you and I serve. Let us then compose songs about him. Let us then dance because of him, even though we are Baptists. Let us dance up and down the aisles, over chairs. Let us dance, okay. May we give truly everything to the one who gave everything for his glory and our good. He is worthy. He's worthy of your talents, of your abilities, your time. He is worthy. So tonight, what does this mean for you? First of all, are you living in Christ's victory? Or do you still see sin, your sin, as bigger than it actually is? Do not undermine the sacrifice of Jesus. His sacrifice is bigger than that. Your God is bigger than that Goliath in your life. It may seem big, but compared to our God, it is small. Infinitesimally small. Don't make it bigger than it is. It's what Paul says in Colossians 2 and 3. When you focus upon God, the heavenly things, the sin you battle becomes so small. Because you're recognizing how big, how powerful, how worthy God is in your life. And that's why I've said it time and time again, you can't overcome sin by focusing on sin. You can't defeat Goliath by focusing on how big Goliath is. Otherwise, you'll never overcome that fear. You you overcome sin by focusing on God. You grow in holiness and sanctification by focusing on God. The more you know about Him, and the bigger you see Him in your life, the more victory you'll experience and the less sin will have that effect on you. Are you living in Christ's victory? Secondly, is God calling you to something that seems unreasonable or illogical? And that could be the point. We saw it in Abraham and Isaac. We'll see it again in Jonah and Hosea. God often calls us to do crazy, crazy things. And that is the point because it's only when God calls us, as I said earlier, to step out of the boat that we get to walk on the water. If we want to experience the miraculous in our lives, if we want to truly be vessels of God, don't let your human reason convince you to walk away from a calling that God has placed on your life. The world may say that's ridiculous. Your friends and family may say that's ridiculous. But if God has called you to it, 
He's bigger than whatever issue is coming up. Trust Him. Finally, does Jesus have your complete loyalty? He's certainly worthy of it. Does your, does your life reflect that loyalty? Does your bank account look like you're loyal to Jesus? Do the movies you watch look like you're loyal to Jesus? Do the friends you have, the relationships you're in, the way you talk to people, the way you drive? Sorry about your toes. I mean to step on them right then. Does every facet of your life look like you are sold out to Jesus, that you are loyal to him alone? Because if what he did on the cross really is this important, if we wouldn't have life or purpose or meaning without it, how could he not? As the band comes back up, that's what I want you to focus on tonight. Does the Lord have my loyalty? Am I living in victory? The victory that he provided Do I see my sin as too big? Is God calling me to something that's bigger than I can imagine? And I know I've got to rely upon him to do it, and I don't know how to do that yet. God, teach me, help me know how to rely upon you more. As we say earlier, you can't rely upon the Lord, you can't have given him your loyalty if you haven't surrendered your life to him to begin with. And tonight, if you're still living for yourself, if you are your ultimate concern, if you've not given yourself to the lordship and the saviorhood of Jesus Christ, I would love to talk with you about it. If you still feel separated from God and you need Jesus to come in and fill that gap between you and God, come talk to me. Because you can't live this without that connection being restored. But if you have, does your life look like it? I know some of you in here tonight, you got some Goliaths in your life. And to this point, you've been running away scared like these men of Israel. I want you to know there's victory at the feet of Jesus. If you need to come up here and pray for yourself or someone you know, these altars open, pray. Say, God, I give this to you so I can live and walk in victory. Maybe you've been running from a calling in your life. Let tonight be the night where you give it to God. Knowing that he might want to kill a Goliath because of your faithfulness. The church needs bold people with that kind of faith to step up in a culture that is progressively falling away from morality. What is the Holy Spirit saying to you tonight? Father, I pray you would speak to us, Holy Spirit, be mighty among us. Father, I pray that our worship of you will reflect our heart toward you. God, may we not be shy 
are fearful of what others think of our praise to you. May truly everything we have be given to you because you are worthy. Do a work in us and through us, I pray. In the mighty name of Jesus.